Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of the New Books Network channel on finance, uh, and I'm delighted to have as my guests today, uh, Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth. Both of them are uh, New York Times journalists. They have just published When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. That's just out from Doubleday. Walt and Mike, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. So this is a very timely and pointed book. Uh, normally, we would ask, you know, what led you to this and, and a long history of how you got to this. But really, I, I just want to know uh, this pretty critical account of McKinsey's role in the economy. Uh, you know, knives are out for a lot of people and a lot of institutions, and, and there's a, the country's divided, as we know, on many topics. So this, I guess, book doesn't surprise me at all, but exactly how did it come about? What was the, the specific catalyst? So I can imagine there are lots of general catalysts as to why McKinsey would be, how shall we say, revealed uh, in the fashion that you have, have chosen to reveal it. Well, I had friends who went to work for McKinsey or, or considered going to work for McKinsey. And I'd ask them, well, what do you do? And they said, well, you know, we really can't talk about it. Those are the ones who, who actually were working for him at the time. And the more I asked around, um, and there really wasn't a whole lot written about them. Um, certainly there were publications by, by McKinsey, but you know, I came to learn that they were extraordinarily big, powerful, with a reach that went around the globe, and that there was no accountability. And as journalists, you know, that is really something that is important to us, because their entire business model is really based on secrecy. And so we decided to try and poke into this, look into this black box, and find out what they're doing. And you have quite a section in the back and, and you're sensitive throughout your narrative on your sources, who you've spoken to, who you haven't, where you got them, because it, it sounds like that was part of the, the challenge was to actually uh, produce an account of a firm that doesn't want accounts produced of it. Yeah, it was a disincentive to do the book in the first place, uh, because that's obviously uh, a big barrier to get over. 
And, and most of the McKinsey uh, consultants are very loyal to the company and they wouldn't talk to us, even many of whom left years and years earlier. Uh, so yes, that was a challenge. Uh, journalists need things on the record. Journalists like documents. And to get both of those took a while, but you know we were persistent and we got it. I kind of wanted to get this a little bit later, but you know uh, it's worth raising now, just uh, even if we return to it. But kind of the other side of the story, obviously McKinsey didn't respond to your requests for information if they were presented in any case. And the way the firm is presented is obviously not the way the firm presents itself. It's kind of presented and uh, readers should pick up the book and, and, and see it. It's an easy read. It's very clear. But it, it's, it's kind of uh, part of the system of uh, global uh, neoliberal economics we've had dominant over the last three decades, which is kind of outsource everything and produce profits rather than goods and services. And I'm sure they have a different narrative for what they're doing. And you do mention their narrative. And you compare it, say, with, I thought it was funny because I'm in finance that uh, uh, people don't even pretend at Goldman Sachs to have a narrative other than pure profit without regard to anything. But McKinsey does have a narrative uh, that is not the narrative you have presented. W- let's actually start with that and then how you have encountered that and, and, and worked through it. Let me um, make an go, go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. Oh, well, you know, and then you can jump in, Walt. I mean, um, so McKinsey called itself a values-driven organization, um, and they take that very seriously. Um, they're here to make impact on the world, uh, to be a catalyst for change. Um, these are the, you know, the very, um, you know, good-sounding words to you that you'll hear, you know, and read on their website. Um and so that's the narrative that they are they are the world's experts. They are some of the, the world's smartest people, and indeed they are. Uh, and they're for hire to solve your problems um, and to make an impact. Um, and that's what draws people to McKinsey. They're very successful at recruiting. I started to make a spreadsheet of all the Rhodes Scholars that uh, McKinsey had hired, and I had to stop. It was just too many. Um, you know, their current managing partner. Uh, is a Rhodes Scholar, uh, two managing partners before, a Canadian named Dominic Barton, also a Rhodes Scholar, so many people. Um, And so, you know, when you hire McKinsey, you hire these very smart people uh, to solve your problem. I want to just add something, you know, about the why McKinsey also, you know, there's so many great books written about individual companies or maybe about a financial crisis or, you know, some economic moment in history. But McKinsey works with almost all the companies and also with most of the biggest governments and most powerful governments in the world. So it has an impact everywhere. And we wouldn't have written this book unless we really thought that McKinsey actually did make a difference. And what we found is in so many instances, that difference that it made actually did harm. And harm defined as emptying out the middle class, uh, economic inequality. How do, you, how do you want to define that harm? And I want to place that in the context, as I mentioned, of, of uh, kind of a framework, what I uh, think about in terms of the last 30, 40 years of uh, neoliberal globalism, that they seem to go hand in hand. Uh, if McKinsey existed in the middle of the 19th century, they, would they, wouldn't they have been building railroads? <laughs> uh, let's get to the harm first. Um, harm was not hard to find. Um, when you promote opioids in the middle of, a, of an opioid epidemic, that creates harm, that causes harm. When you're promoting uh, cigarettes um, at a time when it was well known and well accepted, widely accepted that these were the most lethal consumer products uh, in history, that is harmful. 
So finding harm was not difficult. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, there are other examples, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But surely if uh, I, I, you say, you know, promoting opioids is, and, uh, and other elements are, which are appear to be self-defeating after a particular time, the, the company wouldn't have been in business for a century, almost a century, if, if they really only did that. Uh, I mean, there has to be some justification uh, for their for why they continue to be used and continue to be able to recruit, as you pointed out, very talented individuals. You know, kind of the other side of the story, if there is one. I, I have to think there is one. I'm assuming there is one. I may be wrong, but that's the hypothesis. Certainly, there have been success stories at McKinsey. Most of the, you know, we didn't write about most of their uh, jobs, their clients, their client work, and you know, many of them go unmentioned. And you know, obviously, the the clients in many cases are satisfied, but also in a lot of instances, they're hired, you know, to provide a justification to the CEO or CFO or somebody else in in the C-suite if they want to do something. McKinsey will come in and do the study that just, you know, by sheer coincidence justifies what that executive wants to do. Uh, so for, by that, in, you know, by that means they're, they're very useful to corporate America or companies around the world. I asked, I happened to be on the phone with the CFO of, of one of their clients. Uh, and I said, you know, why, why do you use them? And the CFO answered in a very uh, guarded fashion. He said, sometimes we buy talent. Sometimes we train talent. Sometimes we rent talent. And the renting talent was uh, the justification for using management consultants, specifically uh, McKinsey, that they don't want to they don't want to do the other two options. And even though it's a perceived to be a very expensive rental, it makes economic sense uh, for them. Uh, so that that was their justification. Yeah, we've certainly heard that too. That you know, they're a SWAT team that could come in, you know, and do whatever job somebody in the C suite wants them to do. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's again put it in the, the context. So you, you do have a chapters. You mentioned opioids. You mentioned tobacco. There are chapters on uh, labor inequality, chapters on uh, senior executive pay quality, Arch. Do you want to discuss Art, Arch Patton and his role in transforming CEO compensation in this country? I think that's a little known tale. I did not. I was not aware of that. I was uh, aware, as I think many of the le- uh, our listeners will be, of the broad outlines of McKinsey's footprint on society. But th- some of the details uh, I had not been aware of, and that was a particularly interesting one. For that, you have to go back to 1950, when um, there, the labor unions had in- negotiated a very lucrative, solid contract um, with, with uh, the, the, the auto companies. And that guaranteed a pension vacations. Basically, it was a passport to the middle class for them with the, with the promise that they wouldn't strike. So everyone sort of benefited within you know limits uh, to an agreement like this. Well, what happened at some point is that uh, uh, General Motors began to worry that, well, maybe, um, maybe the workers are making more money than they should, and maybe we're not making enough, and the gap is growing or not growing at all. And so they commissioned a study and McKinsey looked at dozens of companies and they concluded that, in fact, yes, workers' wages were catching up to executive pay. And and year after year, that study was published. Arch Patton became a huge um, revenue uh, uh, source for the company. Very popular. Normally, consultants aren't known by, they don't, they're not supposed to be, putting themselves out as an individual, but Arch Patton did. 
because everyone wanted a bit of his magic, I think was a, one of the quotes that we used. And so year after year, um, he did these studies and in the net result being that 1950, the, the average worker um, the, made, a th- well, the, the CE it was 30% difference back then compared to now, uh, which is like 350% difference. Is Mike straightened that out for me. Isn't it 30 times? Yeah, I think it's 30 not, times. It's 30, 30 times. times. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, much, much more. Get, the sun is getting to me over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah pardon me. But with that, it's, it also shows, you know, McKinsey was talking to everybody in the industry. So it was learning about executive pay levels at all sorts of different companies, sometimes in the same industry, because McKinsey has no problem consulting companies within one industry. So executives were finding out how executives at other companies were, how much money they were making. And if they were falling short, it, it, it became a race to the top or, you know, a race to the bottom, whatever however you want to call it, you know, but it's, it's it, you know, that information caused an upward rise in executive compensation. And certainly the problem of creeping worker, uh, the, the shrinking pay gap between executives and and workers that that problem was was solved and the i mean so you attribute you know anecdotally but attribute all the same part of the culture of the imperial ceo to mckinsey's advice in that regard at least when it comes to the compensation component i i'm i'm concluding that those might not be your words but it it kind of fits into the mosaic of uh, a very very strong ceo culture in u.s corporations i don't know if you agree with that if that's going too far or not well they're not totally responsible for that gap but they certainly contributed to it and, and, you know, over and over again, they did. And of course, it became very controversial. And as I think you noted, and we'll, I'll note here, you know, the income inequality in this, in this country is tearing apart the country. And it's, a, it's a upsetting to so many people and led to the belief that uh, the system is sort of rigged against us. And, and McKinsey had a role in that. And so part of that is this is where in the green room and some emails before I wanted to set the context. I, I am very interested in, in the changes that have occurred in this country over the last 30 or 40 years from a very specific perspective of declining interest rates and the impact that that has had on corporate and finance, which is my, my day job. But one of that or, or part of that constellation of, of influences is offshoring, uh, outsourcing, and the impact that that has on, on the middle class and the industrial activity and commercial activity in this country. And it seems like McKinsey was at the right place at the right time to be a part, to articulate the uh, most extreme or uh, developed forms of globalism and you know get rid of jobs, offshore, lower cost, uh, margin improvement at all costs. I, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm putting words into your mouth. I'd rather if you say that, but if you see that, because your, your book is specific to McKinsey, but I think that a lot of our readers, particularly a, after the last few years and with interest rates for those in finance, interest rates no longer coming down the last uh, 12 months and so forth, really perceiving a paradigm shift about labor, about onshoring, about offshoring, about supply chains uh, uh, that is changing. And we've had 30 years of, we'll call it McKinsey direction work. And to me, it's very interesting because I think it's coming to an end. I, I don't know if you had that perception at, I don't know when you guys wrote this specifically, because it probably took a couple of years. Uh, but 
uh, whether you felt they were part of a broader global trend or the, and they were carried along with it, advancing it, or the cause of it. Uh, h- how would you react to that? Uh, McKinsey was pushing the offshoring, and they wrote books about it. And when they recognized that there was a, a reaction to it, very negative reaction, and maybe the, the economics of it all became a little clearer to her, they added a phrase, yes, we're, we're still supporters of globalization, but there needs to be a however. And so they started qualifying it. And, and you know, so, so that's the thing that I learned about McKinsey. One of many things I learned about McKinsey is how they uh, adopt the, the management, uh, you know, attitudes of the fashion of the moment. And they're very quickly turn around and they were embracing one idea one day and turning around and embracing the other one the next day. So that's, they're very fluid in that regard. Well, I would just add, you know, it's so, you know, in its early years, you know, maybe in, you know, the immediate post-war period into the 50s, you know, McKinsey was really going after the fad of the moment and pushing this, you know, and teaching companies about the fad of the moment at the time, which was the multi-divisional system of company organization that was really championed by General Motors and, you know, and Alfred Sloan at General Motors. And that really isn't, you know, kind of a neoliberal construct, you know, it's, but what people at McKinsey tell us is they are really an accelerant for whatever trend is going on. McKinsey can really pour the gas on it. And in the 1980s, it was securitization. In the 1990s, it was globalization and offshoring. And you see that in McKinsey's work. They would tell all sorts of companies about, they would preach the benefits of globalization, the benefits of offshoring, even to companies like cigarette companies, for example, that you really wouldn't expect to be a big you know, offshoring kind of kind of company. And it's because of the nature of McKinsey, because they have so many clients that they're able to spread these ideas throughout corporate America and, and actually world, you know, companies around the world. It's- I want to get to that world part, but before a couple other you know, kind of corporate examples, the you guys want to kind of part of a highlight of, of how their advice to Allstate, Allstate made sense to Allstate, but, but uh, it was pretty stark, put it that way. Yeah. And, and again, and this gets back to the big theme of shareholder capitalism. You know, Allstate was a very, you know, conservative with a small C company owned by Sears Roebuck and Company for decades and decades. And, you know, the good hands company, uh, you know, but Sears spun it off in the early 1990s and it became, you know, its, its own entity. Um, and that was right at the time, you know, when uh, companies really, you know, were pushing hard to boost profit, to increase dividends to shareholders and raise compensation for executives. I mean, that was really, you know, um, kind of of the moment at that time. McKinsey came in, found ways to reduce the payouts or at least slow the growth of payouts in claims, Um, changed the system uh, to make it so that, you know, Allstate would fight tooth and nail against, uh, you know, in cases where uh, the uh, policyholders would hire a lawyer, uh, trying to scare all the plaintiffs' lawyers in America never to sue Allstate. Um, and it was, a, it was a very intricate system that, you know, we've actually seen in other industries that McKinsey's worked with as well. And, you know, 
Allstate did very well. Its CEOs did extremely well. Uh, you know, they went from being paid like a normal CEO, uh, you know, of the 80s and 90s into being extremely well compensated um, and, and profit at Allstate also increased. So, um, you know, to the detriment of some policyholders. Let's shift a little bit as well. You mentioned the uh, securitization, and I did not know of of McKinsey's role in securitization. It's worth providing an overview to some of the readers who might not be, and listeners who might not be familiar with what securitization is and and the way that it's in a declining interest rate environment. That's my editorial comment. The securitization has allowed uh, uh, a vast array of riskier assets to get into the marketplace than would otherwise be the case because you're packaging them together, in theory diversifying them, and creating a lower risk. You're taking high risk investments, putting them together, benefits of diversification, and in theory, they are less risk. And you slice them up by that risk and sell them out to pension funds and retirement funds. And you uh, that, that element uh, that McKinsey kind of participated in the creation of the math of that, I had not been aware of that. Could you describe that a little bit? Right. So, I mean, in the easiest sense, securitization is easily understandable through mortgages. Uh, if you uh, if a bank or, or, or some firm buys up a whole bunch of mortgages, packages them together and sells that as a security, um, you know, uh, the theoretically there's less risk. And uh, and also that that raises capital that can go back and then, you know, provide more capital to make more investments, make more mortgages. Uh, um, it, but it wasn't, it's not just mortgages, it's auto loans, it's all, it's credit card debt, all sorts of things. McKinsey did not invent this, um, you know, and, it, you know, this was uh, really pioneered by Salomon Brothers and Credits and First Boston in the early 1980s. But McKinsey evangelized it. And, you know, again, we get back to their huge platform. They can spread this out through the entire banking industry. And that's exactly what they did. They saw in the mid 1980s, that there was a real opening um, to 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 become experts in this. There were McKinsey partners who wrote books about securitization, and not just one. There were two, um, and and they saw this as a way really to capture, like to to be you know a real intellectual force, a knowledge force in the financial industry. And they they got a lot of business out of this too. They got a lot of clients, a lot of banks who weren't doing this you know, learn from McKinsey how to do this, how to restructure their banks uh, in order to take part in this, you know, as you said, in, you know, increasingly risky, you know, this is not normal banking um, in, in this, this risky activity. They, they you know, they, they didn't, in, they didn't cause the financial crisis in 2008, but, you know, of course, securitization gone mad is exactly what caused the financial crisis in 2008 with these, you know, credit credit default swaps, these collateralized debt obligations, which, you know, are obviously very sophisticated uh, securitized debt, the CDOs at least. Yeah, so securitization, like all things, uh, something in moderation is <laughs> uh, is is good for you, and and anything, almost anything, not in moderation, turns out turns out not to be as good for you. And again, this notion of allowing investments to be repackaged and sold, in theory, is innocent enough. There's nothing amoral about that. It's yeah. when you would do it in such a fashion that that you actually mask risk that is underlying, and that's what happened in in the uh, uh, the GFC. I want to shift kind of uh, to a second broad topic, which, again, I think many of our listeners will be aware of McKinsey as a management consulting company, very much allied with U.S. corporations. Uh, Again, that's not really news. Uh, And 
all you have to do is look at the overlap in time over the last, call it 50 years, and it's not surprising they're part of of uh, globalization and, and some of the maybe excesses of neoliberalism in regard to that. But what I think is less well-known and, and articulated and captured in your book quite well is the government involvement, that they are uh, kind of a consultant to governments uh, around the world on many, not explicitly financial issues, but operational issues of governments. And they, you, you have chapters in regard to South Africa and China, the US government. Do you want to describe the McKinsey's government practice, which seems to be, at least from reading your book, almost kind of almost as large as their commercial practice. It may not be, in fact, from a billings perspective, but it does loom very large in your account. There are many uh, problems with that, uh, beginning with uh, accountability. Um, government, you know, it, it can be FOI. You can you can obtain information on how the government's using your money. Uh, McKinsey's a private company, and they're not accountable. And when we've tried to get information about McKinsey's contracts with the government, government will give us some information, but McKinsey's information will often be blacked out or or redacted. So there is a lack of accountability. And there's also a concern that government is outsourcing so much of the work that they should be doing. And, And that raises questions about tax dollars and why is this happening and should it be happening and um, and when you look at for the conflicts of interest that we got into in the healthcare uh, field, um, it becomes even more problematic. Mike, did you want to discuss one any of the particular chapters uh, and you know uh, involvements with uh, whether it's uh, China or with the uh, immigration and uh, ICE? I, I'm I'm drawing a blank on ICE stands for immigration and customs. Immigration. Customs enforcement, yeah, enforcement, etc., uh, or the Britain's NHS. I mean, it's it's really uh, quite a wide range of involvement in government services. Yeah, I, I mean, for most of McKinsey's early history, government was not a big money maker for them. You know, they did do work for the federal government in the fifties, and they did start work with the NHS in the early seventies in Britain. Uh, but uh, you know, the the founding father of McKinsey, who's not James O. McKinsey really, it's a guy named Marvin Bauer, was really you know focused to McKinsey on corporations. And, and, you know, they had some bad experiences, particularly with New York City government in the late 1960s, early 70s. And they were like, you know, maybe this isn't the best thing for us. But around the turn of this century, uh, they really did start focusing a lot more on governments. And the problem there is, uh, you know, the governments that they choose to work with. Uh, you know, Walt can talk a lot more about the, the big problem with working with government in the United States when you're working for both regulated industries and their government regulator. But, um, you know, three of our chapters really focus on on, on outside of, of the United States as well. Uh, when you're working with authoritarian regimes or deeply corrupt regimes, uh, and that was certainly the case in Saudi Arabia, in China, and in South Africa. And in all three cases, uh, you know, it's caused a lot of uh, heartburn and controversy. Uh, and in the case of South Africa, a criminal case uh, against um, against the company. For years, McKinsey would say that they didn't want to work for governments because they didn't see that as a likely place to achieve change. And we can understand that politically. It, it's more complicated than, say, a corporation. But you know, but when they just saw their competitors doing this, they said, well, we got to get on board and look at to South Africa for before apartheid um, ended. They wouldn't work there as soon as it ended. There was a rush of McKinsey consultants over there. And the only way you could make real money in, in the new South Africa 
was to work for ungovernment contracts. And they loaded up on them without the proper due diligence. And in the end, some of those, in fact, three major um, endeavors that they engaged in over there turned out to be um, corrupt, although they there were they weren't the prime offenders here, but they they did not do due diligence on their partners, and that led to uh, a huge scandal in that country. Okay, so let's let's kind of uh, move towards the future, if we can. Here, you, you've written this book. <laughs> in my world, interest rates have moved up. That's changing everything about corporate finance. I mean, we've had forty years of declining interest rates. Interest rates have stopped moving down. That's changing behavior in real time as we watch literally day by day. The situation with COVID, the situation with China, even to some extent, the situation involving Russia's invasion of Ukraine has given a a pretty black eye to globalization and is pushing uh, corporations towards away from offshoring, more towards friendshoring, away from just-in-time supply chains to more resilient supply chains. And I, I wonder, I, I, it is my personal belief that on the finance side of this declining interest rate globalization, that's come to an end on, the, on my side. My question is, do you see, having written the book in the last stages, you know, the last three, four years, I'm assuming, are you perceiving after the book has come out and what's happened the last couple of years, COVID, China, Russia, that the business model is going to be changing? I, you know, I, I would be surprised if the business model changed that much. You know, as we've said, McKinsey changes with the times. Uh, they are very adaptable. Um, you know, while interest rates may be going up, um, they're, you know, one of McKinsey's specialties, you know, is cost cutting and finding ways uh, for companies to save money here and there. And, and we, you know, our book is replete with examples of how sometimes that goes awry. But, you know, in a in a higher interest rate environment, you know, which may set off a recession, uh, which we may have soon, um, possibly, you know, I do believe that uh, CEOs, you know, will will look to McKinsey uh, to to for cost cutting as they have for the past almost century. Um, so I think there's still business in for McKinsey. Clearly, they've been a huge beneficiary of globalization. Clearly, um, you know, uh, but uh, there are certainly paths forward for them. You know, am I going too far out on a limb there, Walt? No, I don't think so. No, I mean, even though interest rates are are going down, one thing will remain the same. McKinsey will be serving the interests of management and the corporate executives, not the interests of the workers, employees, or the communities in which these companies operate. I I, I might provide some pushback. I mean, it'd be interesting to see whether they become sources of saying, well, in order to build up your supply chain, you're going to need to reinvest in things that 10 years ago they would have suggested cutting, whether they're going to literally double <laughs> double back or, or double down or reverse course and become advocates of building back that which neoliberal globalism took down over the last 30 years. That's a scenario. I, I, I granted it may be an improbable scenario, but I, I do think it is a scenario. You know, they so they, you know, may have been talking about just in time, uh, you know, supply chains. But uh, I know that the McKinsey Global Institute, for example, which is their think tank, you know, um, has been doing a lot on supply chains, you know, in in the last few years and, uh, you know, on resilience of supply chains. And so there's business to be made. There's money to be made for McKinsey uh, in this new world, you know, of onshoring, friendshoring um, and supply chain resilience rather than, uh, you know, just in time supply chains. 
What what has been the reaction from the financial media, from McKinsey? Uh, obviously, you had some pretty interesting and perhaps even difficult conversations with former employees. It was clearly angst-ridden for them to have some of these conversations with you. What what has been, I mean, realize the book is only just out, but what, what has been the, the initial feedback, if any? Very favorable. In fact, I think Mike and I would agree that we did not expect that to be the case. We expected more pushback. We expected people you know, being hostile to, you know, ideas that they had previously embraced. So that, you know, there are pockets of that, um, certainly. But I think the overwhelming response has been been positive. And the company itself has been very quiet. Um, I mean, they send out a a, a short statement saying that they're more than all the negative examples that we gave. And certainly that's true. And we mentioned that they do good things, but there hasn't been a whole lot of pushback, a whole lot of anger. Uh, We've gotten a lot of support. Okay. Uh, Well, I'll be interested to see how it plays out again. I'm kind of forecasting at my end of this uh, complex uh, paradigm shift over the next decade. And I I will be keeping an eye on the global management consultants, McKinsey and others, to see whether uh, they reverse course. Uh, In the meantime, uh, the book is When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth, uh, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you. Our pleasure.